the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a cold, rainy day. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever's going on in your heart or mind, we'll do the best that we can. We've had some good questions that have been sent in, but we would love and prefer always your phone calls. It just makes the program a little more interesting. All you need to do is dial 210-340-9585 or toll free. You can dial 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car and we want you to be safe on these wet streets, use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit call now and you'll be connected directly to the studio producer. You can use the hands-free feature of your phone. One more time for our local phone number, it's 340-9585. You know, I hate to see all this rain because we got a lot going on here. Our afterglow is tonight and afterglow is a time that we do on Friday nights. We finish one book before we go to the next. It's just an opportunity for the gifts of the Spirit to flow in the body, uh, where the body can minister to itself. Uh, it's always a really, really sweet time. So if you can't make it tonight because of the weather, be praying for us. We expect the Spirit of God to move in a powerful way. He always does. He never disappoints. Uh, and then remember on Sunday, this will be the last chance I have to say it on the air, is our annual Christmas dinner. It's free. Uh, if you want to bring some food, you can, but you need not bring food. There will be plenty of it. Uh, we'll have a lot of people there, and we'd love to invite you, the listening audience, to the Christmas dinner as well. It starts at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. It's at the Shirts Civic Center. Now, by tomorrow and Sunday, the weather's going to be fine, so it'll be great. Uh, we'd love to have you there. That's at the Shirts Civic Center, 4 o'clock on Sunday. Invite family and friends, especially if they're unsaved. Um, I can promise you that when people start introducing themselves to them, they're going to get the gospel. So uh, we'd love to see you uh, on Sunday. It's always a neat time for us. Oh, we have some questions. Uh, before I get into all of the questions, we just got a question from Anonymous. Anonymous, I'll answer your question uh, via personal email. Uh, I want you to understand that. So uh, I'll get an, uh, a, a return address. If, if you don't have one on that, I haven't seen the direct email. Uh, if you don't have one on the one you sent us, uh, might send us a, a way that I can contact you, and I will contact you personally. Uh, I, f I hear your heart, and my heart breaks with yours. Here is a question from Greg from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, I have a question about God in heaven today. Does he mourn for the world as Jesus did when he was on earth in John 11.35? And then he asks, is Revelation 21.4 applicable to this point? Um, Revelation 21.4, let me take this question backwards, Greg. 
Revelation 21.4 is the tears being wiped from our eyes. Not God's eyes, from our eyes. So I think that's really important to understand that context. It's that looking forward to that moment when we're going to be in heaven and everything that's wrong is going to be set right. Everything that's wrong is going to be set right. Now I'm going to take a little time with this question, Greg, because I really believe it's important. Jesus, as you know, at the tomb of Lazarus, he saw uh, the people that were crying and, and he, he wept. The Bible says it's a very intense verb. He wept bitterly is the idea. And I can only imagine that he would look at things and think, you know, this isn't the way I made this world. I made everything perfect. I saw that it was good. It was very good indeed. And now look what sin and death has done to this world. And I think his heart was broken as he saw the hearts of the people who were mourning. Uh, his heart was broken. And it's it's a, a twofold kind of concept, you know, I, I didn't make it this way, it shouldn't be this way. But then he just had this empathy with the people who were hurting. I also think at this moment, as this was near the last part of his ministry, I think Jesus was forced to deal once again with his own fate, his own destiny. He was going to the cross. He would know that Judas would betray him. He's already spoken on the Mount of Transfiguration to Elijah and to Moses, who sort of filled him in on the details of what was going to happen in his last week on earth. And so I think he was crying for a lot of reasons. Now, as it relates to God in heaven, uh, it's impossible for us to understand an environment where there's only beauty. Now, Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of his Father. The Holy Spirit is at work on earth in our hearts but the Holy Spirit is God he's everywhere he's in heaven as well and so all three persons of the Godhead in a perfect environment that's going to sound contradictory but bear with me for a moment moment they're looking at this world and I do believe their hearts are breaking and we know he mourns for the world Jesus gave us that example when he walked through this world but he looks and sees what's happen, not, not just the disease and people who are suffering, but I think what breaks his heart the most, Greg, because Jesus is all and only about people, what breaks his heart the most is that we've hardened in our hearts in rebellion against him. I had a question that came to me privately today about what a first grader should say to his friend in public school who believes he's transgender. Six, six years old. I know Jesus' heart hurts. I think about the question that I had on this program earlier this week from a I'm assuming a professing Christian who tried to rationalize smoking marijuana. Well, God made it, and it's good to cure diseases like those who suffer with cancer. Well, he's smoking it, and he doesn't deal with cancer. I think when we drink more than we ought to, I think it breaks his heart that we need to feel medicated to survive to cope with this world. I sit with people all the time who have only a casual relationship with their Bibles, not believing the promises in it. I'm talking believers. And that they're immersed in the writings of this world. And their problems just keep on going and growing. And I know it breaks his heart. So Greg, your heart should break too. My heart breaks. Because we have to bear his heart in us. One of those days, all of the pain will go away. Our, our memories will be wiped. Every tear will be gone. 
until that time in the fallen world, Greg, I think that we're supposed to mourn because that's exactly what God in heaven is doing. It's a very important question. And the reason I think we need to keep mourning, I don't, I don't mean to sound morose or try to bum anybody out here, but one of the things that we have to remember is that if we don't mourn for the condition of this world, then our hearts get used to this world and our hearts grow harder and harder. And then we become part of the problem instead of being the light. One final comment, Greg. I, I saw our senior class shirts yesterday for the first time. Some of the kids are wearing them today uh, for, for our academy. And um, it, it's the best shirt I've ever seen. I mean, I love this shirt. It's like a, a baseball undershirt, you know, with a gray top and the black sleeves. Um, but on the, on the front over the heart, there's a logo of a salt shaker. On the top of the salt shaker is a, a, like a light bulb. And on the bottom, you see salt coming out. Obviously, we're to be salt and light. That's the meaning of it. And then over on the other side of it, uh, all of the seniors have autographed inside the numbers on their shirt. All of the seniors have autographed that shirt as though saying, I'll, I'll be salt and light, I'll be salt and light. And if we as Christians ever forget that that's our responsibility to be salt and light, then things in this world are going to get worse and worse. So Greg, let's just pray for the people in this world. Don't get angry at the people in this world. Instead, pray for them. Very important. Oh, three four zero ninety five eighty five. You know, on a sunshiny day, that question wouldn't have bothered me as much, but I think on a cold, rainy day. Here is a question from our mobile app from Liz. She said, Pastor Ron, what is the synoptic gospel in comparison to the other books in the Bible? Are they New Testament books only? Uh, Liz, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, they, they, they drew from one another. We believe... Let me say, I, don't, I won't say we. I believe that Mark was the first of the Gospels that was written. Mark is widely believed to be Peter's um, reflection on the life and ministry of Jesus. Peter tells us a little bit about his character, his personality. He was short and to the point and, and um, you know, not very flowery with words. Uh, Mark would have been the one doing the dictation. And in Peter's case, um, all that first-hand information would be valuable. Mark and Luke both drew off of some of that information while compiling some of their own. So the Synoptic Gospels are the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, that were written about the same time frame and contain much of the same information. We are in the Gospel of Luke here uh, on Sundays now, Liz, and, and uh, one of the things that you want to do when you're studying the, the, the Gospels is always uh, look at your notes on the other um, accounts of the same stories. It's very important. Um, it, it this Sunday we're going to be talking about the, the, the healing of Jairus' daughter, raising her from the dead, and the um, the, the, the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. Now we can go to Mark and we can go to Matthew and we can look at those stories and they're slightly different detail. Not different as in contradictory, but just different as in additional detail. So the Synoptic Gospels are New Testament books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very reliable. Um, the only one that is not included, of course, is the Gospel of John. John was written many, many years later, as many as uh, 30 or 35 years later, and it was written by John and has a completely different focus. So that's the answer, Liz. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from our mobile app from Thomas. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. I have a very non-essential, obscure question about the original feminist today. Is there any further information about Queen Vashti? Do you think God honored her refusal to be paraded by King Asuras? 
Thomas, yes, there is. In fact, you can look, um, um, uh, Google Queen Vashi. There's some really good uh, historical information that's made available to That's not inspired, so we can't um, testify to the absolute inerrancy of it or the perfection of it. But uh, yes, God did honor her refusal to be um, um, leered at in front of the king's friends. Um, she was later be restored. Uh, she was a very powerful woman uh, and, uh, and later ruled um, over the kingdom she once, once had. So uh, yes, she is the original feminist. I've never thought about it like that, but that's the way to be in a, feminist, uh, a feminist. She was one who stood up for her dignity uh, before God. Also indicates that she was uh, a woman who feared God, or at least was looking for God, even in a pagan world. And God always rewards those who seek him. Good question, Thomas. I like it. One I've never, ever had before. And that's not easy these days. Here is a question from Jaden. He says, Pastor on when the Antichrist comes to earth, will he know he's the Antichrist? Uh, Jaden, he'll know he hates Jesus Christ. Um, I don't think he will know that he's the man we call the Antichrist. Sin is always insane. Pride is, is always sort of a, a deep, deep well. And uh, I think when he comes, he really thinks he's going to do well, um, do good. Uh, he's going to start liking the attention too much. We know that pride puffs up. And um, uh, at some point, at just the right time, he's going to be satanically empowered. And only then will he know that he is the man the Bible calls the Antichrist. The world certainly won't know Jaden, but I do believe that he will know eventually. I just don't know that he will believe it or know it at first. It's an amazing thing, this world that we live in. You know, people reject Jesus Christ, and yet uh, a, a good speaker, by the way, he will be the greatest orator probably in the history of our world. He will be handsome. He will be likable. Uh, he will be somebody that just uh, supernaturally draws people to him. And I think when he starts getting all of that attention, and his heart gets harder, and his pride um, makes his heart even harder, I think that's going to be the opportunity for the enemy to come and possess him and do his evil stuff. So um, he will know, just not at first. Uh, along with Jaden's question, another question uh, asked a couple of times this week, uh, will we, the church, know who the Antichrist is? And the answer to that is no, we won't because we won't be here when he's revealed will be taken away in the rapture of the church. Um, the Antichrist will use that, seize that opportunity uh, to, to make his move sort of in the world. And uh, he will make his mark and people will be convinced that he is the answer eventually declaring him to be God. So he will pay a big, big price for it. Jaden, thank you for the question. Here is uh, Manuel. He says, is the United States identified in prophecy? Um, and well, the answer to that question is no. Uh, there is nowhere in your Bible that the United States is thought about, spoken about, um, nor do we appear in any sort of uh, timeline or future plans of God. Now, uh, I, get, uh, I make people upset when I say that. It's hard for us in the United States to believe we're the most powerful nation in the world how could we not be there? Well, there's a couple of reasons that I would like to suggest, Manuel. First and foremost, um, all you have to do is look around. Greg's question earlier, is God in heaven mourning? The answer is yes. Uh, all you have to do is look around at this country that we live in, and uh, it, we're sliding down uh, an evil hill so quickly. We've turned our backs on God so completely as a nation. Now, obviously, there's a remnant. We're the light. We're salt, Christians. But relatively speaking, we're few. And this country that we live in and love has turned against the Lord, and we're going to pay the price. 
You know, if you walk with Jesus through the gospel accounts, when people walked away from him, Jesus let them go. When they demanded he left in my study last Sunday, when the people in the gatherings demanded he leave because he killed all of their pigs, he left. Well, and the same thing happens today. This nation has turned its back on God to such a degree that Jesus can let us leave. I think there's another reason, Manuel, that the United States is not identified in prophecy. I think we are now beginning, and I think when I say now, it's been over the last eight years, nine years. We have turned our backs on Israel, which I personally believe was the reason this nation for so long has had God's blessing. Israel needed a protector in this world. God chose us to do it. And now we've even abdicated that responsibility. Pressuring the Israelis to negotiate away the land that God gave to them. God didn't give it to a group called the Palestinians. They have no historical right to that piece of property. And what we've got is we've got a a nation that's taken the sides more and more, again, especially in these last nine years or so. We've taken the side of those who oppose Israel. All you have to do is look at the media portrayals of the Middle East crisis. All of the criticism goes toward Israel. And they're great blessings. God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And we were blessers of Israel. After World War II, after six million Jews were exterminated by Nazi Germany, by Hitler. The world was sort of ripe and soft for somebody to take the initiative United Nations did to allow Jews to return to their homeland sort of well, I know nothing we can do can make up for what happened but here's what we will do now and the impossible happened after almost 2,000 years of wandering the, the earth the people of God returned to their homeland and the nation was reestablished. That's never been done, not in anything close to that in the history of the world. And without the United States, that never would have happened. And so we're ultimately a non-factor in the end time scenario. Let me give you a little bit of encouragement, Manuel. I think this, the possibility that and this is my prayer, my deep prayer. There's a possibility that God's Spirit will move one more time in this nation. Maybe our prayers will be answered. I think of the Jesus people days back in the late 60s and early 70s. The last real revival in the world. And we've been praying for another outpouring of God's Spirit. And just maybe, just maybe God's Spirit will move through this country one more time with such power that at the rapture of the church we'll find the United States virtually vacant because of the numbers of people that have been taken to heaven to be with their Lord. But apart from those scenarios, then well, there's not much to be hopeful for. The United States is not identified in prophecy. By the way, one of the things that we really need to be careful of, false teaching, uh, unfortunately I don't get questions about it anymore, but but uh, there's a book by Jonathan Kahn called The Harbinger. Um, and, you know, he claims that the United States and Israel are the only two covenant people of God ever. That's absolute silliness because the United States uh, never made a covenant with God. 
Um, and, and of course, he identifies, misidentifies um, the United States in little obscure passages of prophecy. Um, but no, Manuel, we're on our own. We Christians need to be salt and light. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We're about at the end of the first half of the program. Uh, we would love your live calls and questions. Please, again, I want to beg you, be careful out there in the wet streets. Um, I want you to take care of yourself. Let me go to a really quick dog. No, i got one minute. don't even have time for this question. Uh, so let me just say this, remind you again, we have an afterglow here tonight at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We won't be live streaming it. This is a sort of an intimate setting. If you want to see it, you've got to be here. Um, but we'd love to invite you, 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, and then on Sunday, this will be my final reminder, Sunday at 4 o'clock at the Shirts Civic Center. Uh, we have our annual Christmas dinner. You will be blessed abundantly, and we will be blessed if you join us. It's absolutely free. 4 o'clock at the Shirts Civic Center on Sunday. Okay, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show. I know John just told you, but 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jeremy. He said, Pastor Ron, are Christians commanded to give money to their church? Uh, Jeremy, the answer is no. We're not commanded, but please hear the rest of this. We have been granted the privilege of giving to our church. That's very, very important for you to understand that distinction. Old Testament Jews, the people of God, were commanded. They had no choice. Yet when the new covenant replaced the old one, no longer are we under that compulsion. In fact, Paul says that we're never to give under compulsion. So no, we're not commanded to. But consider this. If Jews were commanded to give a tenth under a law, a covenant of law that leads to death, how much more should we who are New Testament Christians give when we've been given a covenant of life? How much more grateful should we be? I know there are churches that will use the Malachi passage, you are robbing God, that's just bad scholarship. On the other hand, when we refuse to give to our church, when we consider our money ours instead of God's, we're not robbing God, we're robbing ourselves. And when we rob ourselves, when we get ripped off, we're the ones who don't understand the goodness of God. We reap what we sow. That doesn't mean that we give so that we will get. But when we give with a cheerful heart, a truly cheerful heart, Jeremy, then you learn the principle that you cannot give God. Again, motive is everything. If you give to get from God, your heart's wrong. But if you give to God because he's already given everything, then it's just like God can't help himself. He just blesses you because that's who he is and what he does. It's a much, much freer way to live. Let me address one other thing. There are other places Christians can give besides the church, but the local church ought to be the first place that we give. The body you're a part of, you ought to be thrilled to support the ministry. Let me give you just a quick example, and then I'll get off because we've got a phone call waiting. Um, here at our church, we have a free medical clinic. We've got a free school. We do so much at uh, our home 
for women in difficult or dangerous situations. We got all kinds of other ministry. It costs a lot of money. If people didn't give, then we wouldn't be able to do those things. And what God has done with, with our people, I'm just using our church as one example. I'm sure this is repeated over and over in our city. But God begins to bless those who give joyfully and cheerfully. And when he does, then they give more. Our church has become a very generous church, and we never ask for money, nor do we ever make our needs be known. But the local church, Jeremy, is the first place that ought to receive your love offerings to the Lord. I don't even use the word tithes, because what we do is we say, Jesus, here's your money. Look how much you gave me to hold. What do you want me to do with it? And then you listen and you do what he wants and then he blesses. It's a pretty good relationship that we got. Let's go to shirts now and talk with John on line one. John, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Hi, John. My wife's here with me. I told her to say hi. Hi, Pastor. <laughs> hi. <laughs> it's Dill. Uh, I had a question. I was reading uh, today in uh, John, Book of John, uh, chapter 3, Verse 8. I'm driving right now. I don't have it in front of me to read, but uh, it was talking about how uh, the wind, it comes from this direction, goes this direction, you don't know, and it's, it's so is the Spirit. I just don't understand what that means, and I was wondering if you could maybe give me uh, an explanation. I can. Thank you, John. Thank you, Adela. God bless you. I got to see John. I got to see John briefly at the gym today as well, so uh, see you tonight, I hope, at the afterglow. Um, Jesus is, obviously you know that Jesus is, uh, in this chapter, uh, talking with Nicodemus. He's talking about being born again. Um, uh, in, in, I'll go up a couple of verses. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And so he says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Now, by the wind, this is a sort of a, a, a metaphor reference to the Holy Spirit. And he's using the wind as an example to help Nicodemus understand what he's saying. Now remember, John, that Nicodemus was the, the, the teacher of Israel. There's a definite article. He's Israel's preeminent teacher. He's a wealthy guy. He's a famous guy. And he's usually the one who's answering all the Bible questions. Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And then he says, he's going to say, well, how can this be in verse 9? Well, he's just saying the Spirit of God blows. When the wind blows, we can't see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. You know, we can see leaves or branches that are blowing in the wind. And so we can see what the wind causes, but we can't see um, the wind itself. Well, the same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. When the heart of God, now Nicodemus at this moment didn't know he was talking to God incarnate. But when you hear the voice of God, the word of God, and it begins to stir in your heart, you have no idea where it comes from and you don't have any idea where it's going. That was true of all of us when we got saved. Uh, I didn't know I was going to be a pastor in San Antonio, Texas um, many, many, many years later. Uh, I just was a desperate sinner calling out to God. And the reason is because the wind of the Holy Spirit this, this, this regenerating wind of the Holy Spirit was knocking on the door of my heart. No matter how hard I tried to run away, I couldn't. Uh, and I couldn't make sense of anybody. I, I, the day I got saved, John, I didn't know at all what I was in for. All I knew is that I had to give my heart to this man, Jesus, and instantly when he came in, everything changed. Well, that's what Nicodemus is resisting now. And that's why in the next verse, he says, how can this be? Now, I want you to think about something, John, because this is a really, really important thing, especially for men. You know, we spend our whole lives trying to make something of ourselves. Nicodemus had been successful. He would invested everything in his craft, in his knowledge of the word. He achieved the pinnacle of success, yet he was still empty inside. And basically what he's saying is, how can these things be? It's not the first time he asked how, thing, how this can be. In verse 4 of that chapter, 
He says, how can a man be born? This is the first time Jesus said, you must be born again. And he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And that's when Jesus gives him the rest of the answer. He's saying, look, this isn't about going into your mother's womb. This is about dying to the flesh, the old you dying and the new you being born. How can this be? Let go of everything you hold near and dear in your heart. Open your hands and hold on to that which I give you because I'm giving you eternal life. It's one of the great passages, great conversations in all of our Bibles, John. Thank you guys very, very much. Be careful while you're driving out there. We've still got time for anybody else who wants to say the question. 340-9585. Here is a question from Mary. I'm sorry, May. It's May. Uh, Pastor on should churches sing Hillsong or Bethel songs in church worship? May, um, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. The answer is yes and no. Um, there's some great songs that they do where there is no heresy in the lyric. Uh, some of the songs are absolutely silly and crazy. Um, so we do the ones with the lyrics that are good, and we don't do the ones that the lyrics are bad. Uh, I don't think that we do any Hillsong or Bethel songs here, but our standard would be the same as with every other song. Um, are the lyrics rightly representing the Word of God, the Scriptures? If they are, then we'll sing them. If somebody would come to me and say, I can't believe you sang a Bethel song, uh, I would hand them the song, and I would say to them, we'll find something in the lyric of that song that's wrong. Yeah, but if you're endorsing Hillsong, I'm not endorsing Hillsong, I'm not endorsing Bethel. I've just got a beautiful song that honors God and we're going to sing it. And the people that are leading us into worship are men and women who honor the Lord with all of their heart. May, let me do one other thing here with your, with your question. My worship pastor and his worship teams, of which Paula is part of the, one of the Sunday teams, um, they understand their responsibility as they stand on that stage and sing those love songs to Jesus. They understand their responsibility to live what they're singing. That's been drilled into their hearts and drilled into their brains from the very beginning. Uh, I, I'm not a music person. Gratefully, God surrounded me with a bunch of music people. The reason I love worship at church is because I know the people doing the worship. I know their stories. I know what God has done in their hearts. And May and for everybody else, my favorite time of worship every Sunday, well, Wednesday and Friday too, for the most part, is when I, in the last song, I come up on stage while everybody's worshiping so as not to be a distraction. And for those three or four minutes that I'm standing up there, I get to watch people in the congregation worship. I get to see people with tears flowing down their cheeks. I get to see people with their hands raised high. And I look at them, and every once in a while, I don't see well. I think most of you know that. But I'll see somebody and be able to know by where they sit or, or I've just known them so long. And I know their story and I see what God has done. And he's turned a sinner into a worshiper and that's the most beautiful thing. So back to your question, May, if a hill song or a Bethel song uh, is accurate in terms of its doctrinal positions, then uh, uh, I'm not going to exclude it just because um, Hillsong and Bethel are both weird, goofy churches. Here is an anonymous question. He says, I'm a Christian with gay friends who I don't want to believe are going to hell. Why do we rely on the Bible to conclude their destiny instead of loving and accepting them? Um, anonymous, the reason we don't do that is because the Bible is the word of God. It has nothing to do with our feelings or our emotions. Greg asked a question earlier, is God's heart broken? God's heart is broken. His heart is absolutely broken. Because people have 
rebelled against him to the point that he's given them over to their hearts. Our country is the very definition of Romans 1. God gave them over. And they did things that were indecent. Men with men and women with women. Anonymous, on my walk with the Lord in our neighborhood, um, there's a place where a, a, a homosexual couple lives in my neighborhood. I know them both from the gym, and they're both nice enough guys. Um, and I, I get by their house or by their street, and I pray for them. And we've had some homosexuals who've come to the church, and we love them very much, and we, we want them to get saved. Um, so I include them in my prayer there. Um, have an, uh, an old um, friend from the past when we first got here to San Antonio who was very generous with us at the beginning and and uh, we loved him and um, I got pictures that he married a man and um, I, I evidently still believes he's a Christian and so I can pray for for them but but I pray for them and all they represent. And the reason that I do that is because my Bible says, the Word of God says, that they're going to spend eternity in hell. If you accept them and affirm them for who they are, you're complicit on their journey to hell. That's why we tell people to repent. If you had a friend who was a serial adulterer, or a, a serial drunk driver. You wouldn't love and accept that. Why? Because those things are sin. Why would we do anything else with somebody who's in a relationship that God condemns? Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6 says that people who live the way they're living will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if we really love people, Anonymous, then we've got to want them in heaven. So that's your choice. When you say, I'm a Christian with gay friends, you need to examine your heart. Because a Christian, by definition, has to agree with our Christ. And Jesus was never soft on sin. Go and sin no more, he would tell them. We love them. We need to want them in heaven. We rely on the Bible because it is the Word of God. Please examine your heart. Make sure you're really a Christian. Are you really born again? This is a question that I honestly have a hard time understanding how it could possibly come from somebody who's truly been born again. Here is a question from Jackie. He or she says, I don't know if it's a female, in order to be blessed by God, how far do we have to go with obedience? Now, Jackie, if I'm taking your question right, it's sort of like you're asking, well, if I'm partially obedient, will I be partially blessed? The answer is no. Acts 5.32 says, God gives the Holy Spirit. The context there is always in power to those who obey. You want to be blessed by God? You have to be obedient to God. And the moment you're disobedient to God, then you forfeit the blessings of God in your life. That doesn't mean that His Son didn't die for you. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation. I mean, there are those general blessings, but to, to walk in fellowship with Jesus, the Apostle John says in First John that he, because He is light, if we're going to walk with Him, we have to walk in the light. That means necessarily we've got to come out of darkness. And again, by definition, Jackie, darkness is disobedience. So if you want to be blessed by God, and imagine serving a God who wants nothing more than to bless us all day, every day. Imagine that for a moment. And, and we frustrate Him because we don't let Him bless us because of disobedience. So we have to be obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. That's got to be our focus. Instead of seeing 
how much we can get away with and still be blessed a little bit or how much we can get away with and still be saved. We ought to spend our time and energy trying to find out how close we can get to God instead. And Jesus said that we can get really close. 340-9585 as we're running down the week. <laughs> Here's a question from Solomon. He says, what does Jesus mean in Mark chapter 13, verse 30, when it says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Uh, Solomon, that's a question that we get asked a lot here. Um, uh, remember, Jesus, that's the Olivet Discourse. Um, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Um, that's when he's talking about the destruction of Israel, when he's talking about the, the judgment that will come in the Great Tribulation. And when his disciples ask him, well, when are these things going to happen? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. He didn't mean that Peter and the people that he's talking to, the other disciples, are going to be alive when it happens. But just before that, he gives the signs of the end. The signs of the end. He quotes from the prophet Joel. The moon will turn to blood. He talks about the, the, the things that are prophesied to happen during the Great Tribulation. And what Jesus is saying is that the generation alive at that time will be the last generation before the rapture of the church and the Great Tribulation. So that's what he's saying. He's not saying that, that and this is the way it's most often misunderstood, Solomon. Um, uh, I actually had somebody say, well, Jesus lied because he said to Peter and the others that they would be alive when these things happened. That's not what he said. This generation, what generation? It's a generation that sees those signs. Personally, I think we're getting close to that time. With all my heart, I believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. My producer just gave me the temperature forecast for tomorrow. He said the high won't get out of the 40s. I want him to come tonight. So Solomon, I hope that straightens out for you. It's a generation that sees the signs that Jesus describes. It's a little um, more clear when you read it in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 24. Uh, Douglas wants to know, how exactly can we take authority over the devil? Douglas, there's only one way, and that's to be with Jesus in obedience. To be full of God's Spirit. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. How do we do that? We flee from sexual immorality. We flee from worldliness. We have to be with Jesus. We have to be walking in the Spirit. And then we don't have to take authority over the devil. We have authority over the devil. Now, um, my impression here, Douglas, with your question, is that you're making a reference to um, prosperity teachers, faith teachers, who are always binding and loosing the devil and shouting at him and rebuking him and those kind of things. That's not how we take authority over the devil at all. In fact, most likely, like the seven sons of Siva, in the book of Acts, most likely that's how we're going to get beaten up, how we're going to be in trouble. Uh, I just did a study last week on uh, Legion. I think it was last week. Everything runs together. But um, the, the one thing you don't want to do is shout at the devil. You don't want to talk even Michael, the archangel, who is the equal of Lucifer, who became the devil. Even he was respectful of the devil's power and authority. And when we shout at him and make these false claims of authority, uh, all we're doing is opening ourselves up for more abuse from him. We don't need to do that. Uh, Douglas, I told our church last week that the one thing that, that I try never to do is talk to the devil at all. I want to be so close to Jesus that the devil starts lying to me, and he does, or starts harassing me, and he does. Um, I want to be so close to Jesus that I can say, Jesus, you take care of him. Hebrews says, Jesus is my elder brother. And big brothers are really good at protecting little brothers. Jesus is the best. So I just say, Lord, I want to talk to you. You handle that for me. Uh, I, I try never to speak to the devil. The only time I've ever had to do that is 
on those rare occasions uh, when I've encountered demon-possessed people. Douglas, if you want a, a, a good Bible study on, um, in fact, the most comprehensive Bible study on um, the, the way things work in the spiritual realm um, when talking to a demon-possessed person, uh, go to calvarysa.com and, and go to the study I did last Sunday about lesion uh, because we've got a lot of information. We have two minutes left. I only time for this last question. It's from Albert. Albert says, what is your opinion about conspiracy theories and Christians who believe them? Um, Albert, my opinion is simple. Christians ought to spend more time in their Bible than they do on the Internet. Uh, our, our, our minds have to be shaped by the Word of God, not by the things, this crazy stuff that we find on the Internet. You know, conspiracy theories, I believe, and I believe this based on my experience with people who have gotten trapped by them, um, I believe they have a demonic root, uh, and I believe that if we start uh, disbelieving even the evidence that's clear before our eyes, and we start looking into to all of the possible things that could have happened, uh, I think we are opening ourselves up to an enemy. And I've watched people who couldn't come back from the brink of that. And I mean, Christians who were fruitful and yet allowed this thing into their lives that ended up destroying them and in some cases their families. So uh, stay off the internet, stay off Facebook, stay off social media, read your Bibles and you will never get trapped by those kind of things. I think you're messing with the power, um, Albert, that is um, greater and more dangerous than you ever believe possible. Thanks for the week on the program. Be very, very careful out there. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, have a great weekend serving the Lord. Go to church. Ask God for some divine appointments, and he'll give them. Hopefully we'll see you Sunday at the dinner. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.